Hello, Westgate. Hello, everybody in the theater, folks joining us online. Amazing series that we're in as a church. Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father, Wonderful Counselor. What amazing words. And the obvious question is, how could words like that ever come to be applied to a real flesh and blood human being? And it took a long time. There's a scholar named Houston Smith who wrote a famous book about world religions, and he had a fascinating observation. He says, in all of human history, this is Smith's claim, only two people had such remarkable impact on the world, lived such unique lives, that people would ask them, Smith says, not who are you with respect to name, origin, or ancestry, but what are you? What order of being do you belong to? What species do you represent? Only two, he says, Jesus and Buddha. And what's most striking beyond that is the difference in how these two men responded to that question. People would ask Buddha, are you a god? He would say, no, I'm not a god. I'm just a man. You must not worship me. You must look beyond me. Look at my teaching. Look at my way. Don't look at me. With Jesus, we see, whatever you think about it, another reality. And it was so dramatic that it often gets overlooked, even at Christmas. When the wise men went to Bethlehem, found the place where Jesus was born, we're told, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. At the beginning of his life, there's something about Jesus that caused people to worship. I, I don't care how cute your kids are, my guess is nobody looked at them and was tempted to worship them. Later on, we're told Jesus heals a blind man. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And then Jesus was crucified, resurrected. Some of his followers saw him and were told they came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. When one of his disciples named Thomas, most famous for doubt, saw him after the resurrection, Thomas said to Jesus, my Lord and my God. And what's maybe even more amazing than people's action in worshiping Jesus is the way that Jesus responds to that. He doesn't say, stop worshiping me. He doesn't say, don't call me God. When Thomas calls him God, he commends his belief and calls him blessed. And what's really remarkable doesn't stop just with that observation. And I want to point it out by thinking with you about two lists. A writer by the name of Tim Keller writes about these two lists. At the end of the year, very often there are articles about top lists for movies or books or so on. So two different lists. The first one is people who changed history. If you had to choose the top five people or so who changed history most, who would they be? I will give you my top five in roughly chronological order. Uh, first, I would say Buddha. Uh, his impact on religion from the East spread all around the world. Secondly, the philosopher, Plato. People sometimes will say that all of philosophy is nothing other than a footnote of Plato. Plato's Republic, uh, amazing impact in the intellectual history of the world. Jesus, number three. Um, uh, whatever you think about him, his impact on the world has been extraordinary. The prophet Muhammad, number four. Islam spread uh, all around the world. And then number five, Steph Curry. Uh, I think clearly he belongs on anybody's top five list. Some of the choices are controversial. Steph Curry, nobody's ever shot like that man. He's unbelievable. Anyway, um, 
These are people who struck those around them as having a profound grasp of reality. They had a kind of insight into the human heart. They had kind of wisdom about the way that life worked. Their teaching, their life resonated with people in a way that has lasted for centuries. And on any list of people who impacted history, whether you would identify as a follower of Jesus or not, whatever you think of him, Jesus would be on the list. Uh, his impact is so extraordinary, it's hard to get our arms around it. We are meeting right now in San Jose. Why is there a San Jose? Because many centuries ago, there was a man named Joseph, and his life was so impacted by a man named Jesus that centuries later, on the other side of the world, a city is named after him. The top of the bay is San Francisco. Why is there a San Francisco? Because centuries ago, there was a man named Francis, Francis of Assisi. Remarkable life. And his life was so changed by encountering the person of Jesus that they named cities now after Francis. The capital of our state, California, is Sacramento. Why is there a Sacramento? Because this man, Jesus, had the most famous meal in the history of the human race, commemorating the power of self-sacrificing love, my body, my blood. And that meal was such a holy thing that it was called a sacrament. Before I lived in the Bay Area, I lived in Chicago. Why is there a Chicago? Nobody knows. <laughs> Mystery that cannot be explained. Jesus' birth is the most celebrated birth in history. Nothing else comes close. His death made the cross the most famous symbol in the history of the world. People in the Bay Area, Silicon Valley, stay up nights trying to think about brands and logos. The cross is number one. Nothing else is close. Adorns more jewelry, more graves than any other symbol. The Gospels, the story of his life, have been translated into over 2,200 languages. No other book has been translated into one quarter that many. It's just impossible to imagine world history if his life had not happened. In fact, history itself is divided up into before him and after him. And this was immensely unlikely when you think about it. When, when Jesus died, no one was less likely to be a candidate for changing the world than him on the day that he died. During his life, if you had to bet who would last longer, whose impact would be greater, Jesus and his followers or Caesar and the Roman Empire, you would not bet on the carpenter and his motley crew. And yet today, 2,000 years later, here we are celebrating, and we continue to give our children names like Peter, Paul, and Mary, and Nero and Caesar are names for dogs and pizza. <laughs> Unbelievable impact. Second list, first list, who, who is your top five impact on the world? Second list is this one, people who thought they were God. People who thought, how many of you know somebody on that list? And I'm not talking about your boss. I'm not talking about like a narcissistic kind of person. People on the second list are people with big problems. This is a very sad list. If you know anything about emotional health issues, these are people not in touch with reality. People with very serious identity disorders. One list, people who changed history. The other list, people who thought they were God. I will tell you right now, only one name is on both those lists. And it is unthinkable that a delusional person could impact the world the way that Jesus did. Could have taught with his lucidity and clarity 
and profundity and live with his courage and love. Delusional people cannot do that. I'll give you one more example here. In the ancient world, humility was not highly valued. This is often not known in our day. Uh, Aristotle, for example, talked about the great-souled man, uh, and, and humility was thought to be something demeaning, something that belonged to the marginal, to slaves and so. Courage was admired. Justice was admired. In the ancient world, generally, humility was a quality associated with the weak and the marginal. So how did we come to value humility in our day? Macquarie University, leading university in Australia, did a research project to study the origins of humility as a social virtue. This is what they found. The modern Western fondness for humility almost certainly derives from the peculiar impact on Europe of the Judeo-Christian worldview. This is not a religious conclusion. Macquarie is a public university with no division of theology or even religious studies. It is a purely historical finding. Again, whatever you think about Jesus, the primary reason, according to Macquarie University, that we value humility in the West today is there was a man named Jesus who said things like, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Plato did not say that. And then this man, this remarkable leader, voluntarily died a humiliating death on a cross. How strange that the man who more than anyone else caused a culture to at least claim to love humility is the man who believed he was God. See, you, you, you can't make that stuff up. Nobody can make that up. So slowly... And that will be a key word for us today. Slowly, over time, a group of people, just a few at first, one insight, one observation, one thought at a time, came to realize that everything that they had been hoping for for centuries was somehow caught up in this man and his life. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. And we've been looking at those hopes in this series, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, and today is the phrase, Everlasting Father. Now, if you're familiar with the idea that Jesus is the Son of God, or the second person of the Trinity, don't let the word Father here be confusing. Isaiah, in his day, was talking about the need of God's people that we all have for a leader who would care for the people like a good father or a good parent would. But then over time, people came to see that's what Jesus did. That's who Jesus was. So the word that I want to focus on in the time that's left in this talk today is everlasting. And I think if I'm reading it right, there's about 20 minutes left in this talk, Jay, if I got the clock right. But we're not in a hurry today. So if it goes another 30 or 40 or 50 minutes, that's not a problem. Can I get an amen from anybody on that? No? Okay. Um, everlasting. He lives from age to age. He's without beginning. He's without end. He is not worried about time. In fact, he is Lord over time. So now, if we're going to prepare him room, let every heart prepare him room. If we're going to make room for the everlasting one, we will have to look at what we do with our time. We will have to dethrone time. 
the psalmist said, because this has always been a human problem, because we live in time. And we're finite beings. We have infinite longings. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born. Love the mountains. Or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. And then here's where he nets this out in terms of the human condition. Teach us to number our days. Number our days. What does it mean to number a day? Well, you recognize you have only a finite supply of them. You number them. One, two, so that you can value them, so that you can track them, so that you can use them wisely, so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. We have a hard time doing that. We're always in a hurry to get to some other place in life. We always are. Uh, years ago, Nancy and I were on a plane flight. At that time, we had two children, and they were under the age of three, and we took over the last row of the plane. I don't know how many of you had done cross-country flights with little kids, but it wasn't pretty. Dirty diapers, crackers, crumbs, bottles. Didn't look good. Didn't smell good. You know you're in trouble when the flight attendant asks, could your kids play outside? And we were wondering, why did we bring these kids along? Why do we have these kids in the first place? Until the guy several rows in front turned around and surveyed the damage and said to me, are those your two kids? And I thought about it. And I said, yes, they are. And he said, my wife and I would give anything in the world to have two kids. I said, you don't have any kids? He said, no, we have five kids. We'd give anything in the world. <laughs> so there is the pain of trouble with kids. Uh, there is the pain of not having kids. I know the pain that there will be in some lives just hearing a story like that. Oh, but, oh, but, oh, man, if only I could. There's the pain of losing kids. It seems like we're never living in the time that we want to be. We always want to get to someplace else, and it seems like there's never enough time to live the life and be the person that we want to be. We suffer from what Meyer Friedman called hurry sickness. When I moved out to the Bay Area 20 years ago, I had a wonderful dinner conversation one time with this guy. Meyer Friedman was a doctor. He's actually a cardiac uh, specialist, and he's the guy that coined the phrase the type A personality. Um, hurry sickness, he said. Chronic sense, I'm always behind, always looking for ways to do things faster. Feel kind of irritable, kind of discontented, kind of impatient, kind of overwhelmed. There's just too much stuff to do, kind of preoccupied. Have a hard time just sitting, just being. He told me, this is kind of fascinating, one of the ways that he diagnosed hurry sickness, type A personality, was when an upholster came into his office to do some work, and he said, uh, Doc, I've noticed something unusual about the, the um, way that the chairs in your office get worn in their upholstery. The upholstery is almost always worn off on the front of the chair because your patients are just sitting right on the front of the chair. They can't wait to be seen. They can't wait. I'm wondering if anybody here wrestles with hurry sickness. So just to kind of level the playing field, we're going to do a mass confession. I'll describe it. And if you think you suffer from hurry sickness, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand just as a confession. Not yet. Let me see. This is what I'm talking about right here. Both hands up back there. Just let me, give me a break. Let me describe it first. Just humor me. And then you can confess it. So, for example, if you suffer from hurry sickness, you will find that when you come to a stoplight and there are two lanes and there's one car in each lane, 
you will find yourself guessing based on the make, model, and year of each car which one will pull away fastest to get behind that one because God forbid you should be behind the slower car when the light turns green. Or when you're in the grocery store, if you suffer from hurry sickness, and there's a couple of lanes that you could get in, you will count how many people, how many carts, multiplied by how many items in the carts to figure out which lane you will go. If you're really sick, not only do you do that, if you're really sick, when you get in line A, you keep track of the person that would have been you in line B. <laughs> and if that person gets done before you, you're depressed the rest of the day. So, just mass confession. How many of you think you might suffer from hurry sickness? Ah, it's a sick group. I figured that was the case. Um, almost 30 years ago now, our family had moved to Chicago and I was involved at a church, great church, really fun, very exciting, lots going on though, pretty, pretty intense way of life. And so I called Dallas Willard as kind of a spiritual mentor and described what life was like right now and asked him, what do I need to do to be spiritually healthy and just alive in my soul? There was a long pause, always with Dallas, there was a long pause. And then he said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And then there was another long pause, and I said, okay, I got that. Now what else do you have? Because I don't have a lot of time, and I want to get as much wisdom <laughs> as I can. And he said, no, there is nothing else. He said, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual health in our day. He said, uh, now there's a difference between being busy or active and being hurried. Being busy is an outer condition. It's a state of your body having many things to do. Um, we all have different capacities for levels of activity and the speed at which we move and so on. But hurry uh, is an inner condition. It's a condition of the soul. It's an inability to be fully present with God and with another person. The French thinker Pascal used to talk about how the root problem of the human person is uh, we cannot sit alone in a room. Always preoccupied, always distracted, double-minded, thinking about myself. And what's amazing with Jesus is, although he often had many things to do, he was never hurried. You ne there is never a verse in the Bible that says, and then Jesus hurried. You, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life because it will keep you from God's will. You cannot love in a hurry. No one else will do this for you. Your boss will not do this for you. Your spouse will not do this for you. Your teacher will not do this for you. The time fairy will not come down and sprinkle time dust over you. People often say of things that they know to be priorities that they keep neglecting, I will get around to it when things settle down. Do you know when things settle down? When you die. Death is nature's way of telling you to slow down. When you die, things will settle way, way down. Probably not until then. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life or you will go to your grave with massive regrets. 
Now, what happens to most of us is we look at our lives, we look at our lists, we look at the future, we try to figure out how we're going to get everything done, and we get overwhelmed, and we get preoccupied, we get anxious, we get paralyzed. U.S. Department of Agriculture said every year the average American will eat uh, about one ton, 1,996 pounds of food each year. So imagine for a moment, thought exercise, that you were to walk into a room that had all the food that you were going to eat in a lifetime. 42,000 pounds of dairy, 14,000 pounds of beef and poultry, 7,000 pounds of butter and fat. If somebody sat me down in a warehouse and said I had to eat that much food, I would be overwhelmed, and yet we will all do it. How? What's our secret to putting away 75 tons of food? I'll tell you what it is. We do it one day at a time. One day at a time. How are you going to face all the heartbreak life will hold for you? Because it will hold a lot. How are you going to deal with all those problems? How are you going to handle all the disappointment, all the obligations? Jesus put it like this. So do not worry, asking what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans, this is people who don't know God, don't live with God, run, notice that verb, run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And by the way, that's a, uh, that's a linked pair there. You don't get one without the other. His kingdom, life together with God in his love and his favor through his friend Jesus, through our friend Jesus, beginning inside my body, that's righteousness, that goodness. Seek that first, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has trouble enough of its own. He doesn't say, don't worry about tomorrow, because there will be no trouble then, if you trust in me. His prediction is actually, trouble today, trouble tomorrow. Turn to the person next to you real fast. Just say, trouble today, trouble tomorrow. That's the prediction. The only day where I can find God is today. He is the everlasting Father. That's too much for us. Time is too much for us. It's a mystery. The early Christian thinker, Augustine, wrote, What then is time? If no one asks me, I know. If I want to explain it to a questioner, I do not know. Somebody asked Augustine once, If God is eternal, what was he doing before he made the heavens and the earth and time? And Augustine said he was making hell for people who ask questions like that. He is the everlasting Father, the eternal one. A lot that I don't understand about this. What we can understand is the place where eternity intersects time is now. The evil one will tempt you to live in the past, to regret the past. Wish I could do it over again. But I cannot find God there. The evil one will tempt you to live in the future, to worry about it, as if if I worried enough, I'd be able to control it. But I cannot find God there. The only place where I can find God is in this moment right here. Now is where eternity meets time. There's a great mystery to now. Now is the intersection of eternity with our lives. It is you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And one of the most amazing aspects of the incarnation is God himself accepts the limits of living within time. 
He who occupied the whole universe will now have to learn how to walk and only be able to go as fast as his little feet would carry him. God will have to wait. This is from a theologian uh, named Koyoma. Love has its speed. It is a spiritual speed. It is a different kind of speed from the technological speed to which we are accustomed. It goes on in the depth of our life, whether we notice or not, at three miles an hour. It is the speed we walk, and therefore the speed the love of God walks. He is a three-mile-an-hour God. God is not in a hurry. Give you some other wonderful words. Uh, a kind of a prayer or spiritual guidance. This is from a French priest, Pierre uh, Teilhard de Chenon. Above all, trust in the slow work of God. We are quite naturally impatient in everything to reach the end without delay. We would like to skip the intermediate stages. We are impatient of being on the way to something unknown, something new. And yet, it is the law of all progress that it is made by passing through some stages of instability and that it may take a very long time. Slowly, 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 God leads. Israel, 400 years in slavery. 40 years in the desert. Jesus born as a little baby in a manger and then 30 years of growing up and learning to work as a carpenter. And so I think it is with you. Your ideas mature gradually. Let them grow. Let them shape themselves without undue haste. Don't try to force them on as though you could be today what time, that is to say grace and circumstances acting on your own good will will make of you tomorrow. Only God could say what this new spirit gradually forming within you will be. Give our Lord the benefit of believing that his hand is leading you. And accept the anxiety of feeling yourself in suspense and incomplete. When Dallas Willard died almost 10 years ago now, he had a scrap of paper with these words about hurry on it which his wife Jane sent me. It was on his refrigerator so that he could work on this stuff. What is hurry? Dictionaries use phrases such as excessive haste, a recurrent agitation of sound, a state of eagerness or urgency, in its verb form, to carry or cause to go with haste. Hurry is associated with words such as hurl, hurry, slurry, hurdle, hurly-burly, meaning uproar or tumult, hurrah, hurricane. You can almost feel it. I would say hurry is a state of frantic effort one falls into in response to inadequacy, fear, and guilt. A state of frantic effort one falls into in response to inadequacy, fear, and guilt. So here's the call. Form a clear intention to live without Try it for a day. Try tomorrow. Ruthlessly eliminate her. Trust that whatever God has for you to do, God will give you enough time for you. 
cultivate a mental picture of your place in the world before God. What is God doing and where do you fit in? Because you and I are not God. It's not our project. Make time during this Christmas to stop. To rejoice without producing. To worship. To sing. One of the things I love about this time of year is Christmas music. Anybody here like Christmas carols? Why do we sing? It's an interesting thing. Think about how different our world would be if there had been no Jesus. You ever wonder why atheism or secularism or skepticism or nihilism does not tend to produce great music? This is from an atheist philosopher, Bertrand Russell. This is what he wrote. This is his view of the world. A lot of people in our culture see it this way. Purposeless, void of meaning is the world. Man's growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and beliefs are but the outcome of an accidental collocation of atoms. No fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual beyond the grave. All the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins only within the scaffolding of these truths. Only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation be safely built. Now maybe he's right, but it doesn't make a great song. Imagine singing to your child. How firm a foundation is total despair. We'll all be dead soon, dear, so what should I care? When you're in the grave, you will not make a peep. So shut up your pie hole and let daddy sleep. Okay? We don't sing songs like that to our kids. So, um, just stop and recognize. I'm not running the world and I don't have to. What a good thing. God has made me. God has made our world. God gives me something to do. There will be enough time for me to do what God has for me to do. Without frantic effort, preoccupation. You must ruthlessly eliminate. Deal honestly with why you have a hard time saying no. The writer Anne Lamott says no is the only English word that is a complete sentence. No. I, I think the most uh, widely reprinted cartoon in the New Yorker magazine was kind of a harried businessman talking into the phone, looking at his calendar, and, and all that he says is, never, is never good for you? Deal with the panic of not being busy. This is a habit, as are most of the feelings that dominate human choices. Allow yourself to be in the panic of hurry. Feel it roll over you and do not go for the fix. I mentioned earlier two lists, people who have changed the world and people who think they are God. I'll mention one other list, people whose lives have been changed by Jesus. And that list is still growing. It includes people of every century and every culture and every continent. 
I'll tell you about uh, one such person, and this story happened at Christmas. I was many, many years ago, back in my hometown, Rockford, Illinois, visiting for Christmas, went to get a haircut. The guy who was cutting my hair was asking me a lot of questions about faith and God and so, and, and uh, so after I left there, I was talking to my mom. She got her hair done by his wife, and I said, you ought to ask Pam uh, about uh, her, and her and her husband's interest in God, and my folks taught a Bible study they would bring people to and stuff, and my mom did not want to do that. She said she knew Pam. She had been, uh, uh, she was on her fifth marriage now, been divorced a bunch of time, and uh, no interest at all in anything of God. But the next time she went to get her hair done, she was feeling a little bit convicted about that. So she said a prayer and said, God, I don't want to say anything to Pam about you. So if you want me to talk to Pam about you, you have to give me a sign. Pam walked up to my mom's true story and said, Kathy, Jim and I heard that you and your husband, John, have a Bible study. Do you think it would be okay if we were to come? <laughs> so my mom took that as a sign. <laughs> and that began a relationship, conversation. Pam told the story when she was growing up. Uh, one of her parents was Jewish. The other one was Catholic. So she would sometimes be taken to synagogue and then come home and have to pray the rosary to ask God to forgive her for going to synagogue. So she wanted nothing to do with God. That was very confusing. She started drinking when she was 16. By the time she was 21, she could drink any man she knew under the table, just cycled through marriages, and, um, and eventually started going to AA, came to sobriety, but she didn't want anything to do with God because of her history. So, you know, there's the higher power thing, turn our lives and will over to a higher power, and so she named her higher power Ralph. I was called my higher power Ralph. And that worked okay until one day she was at a meeting and a guy came in and he was still drunk, and he smelled really bad, and when he started to talk, he just vomited all over everything, and what he had said was, my name is Ralph, I'm an alcoholic. And she said, that's not my God. And that began the quest that led to that conversation with my mom. And she became one more of now untold millions of people whose lives have been changed by this everlasting and that can be you. So I want to invite you right now. Just bow your heads for a moment. Let me pray. Real good thing about pausing for prayers to stop and to notice what's going on in our minds and our bodies. If there's any frantic unrest, pressure, chronic, hurry, upset, impatience. Would you hand that over to God right now? Would you be willing right now to surrender your time? Just one day at a time, just for today. God, my time is yours now. I will choose how to spend it together with you, asking you for guidance when I'm confused. I will seek to be fully present in this day before you and before whatever people are around me. Thank you that you are from everlasting to everlasting. 
Teach me to number my days so that I may have a heart of wisdom. 